Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. This time we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation and the series of seven trumpets. And uh, last week we looked at the first part of the trumpets and today we're looking at the second part of the trumpets and I think next time we might be looking at the third part of the trumpets. But anyway, we'll see. Today we're looking at trumpets part two, chapters 10 and 11. Alistair, welcome. As always, a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have you. Now, um, what have we seen so far with the first six trumpets in brief? Like a two-minute summary, please. (laughs) So the trumpets follow after the seals. Once the seals have been opened, the angels are given trumpets, and they blow them in a sequence that begins with four trumpets that um, lead to judgment upon different realms. There are parallels that we noticed with the judgments of the trumpets and various the plagues upon Egypt, the hail mixed with fire, water turned to blood, um, the boils as a result of the um, dust from the kiln, the smoke from the kiln, and also the plague of locusts. And so we've already got some pattern playing out here. The fourth was followed by the coming of an eagle and the introduction of the final ones, which are woes. And so there's a 4-3 pattern that corresponds with the 4-3 pattern of the seals, which begins with the four creatures, the four horses. Yes, quite a lot there, wasn't there? We covered an awful lot of ground last time. Now, who is the mighty angel who appears in Chapter 10? We're going straight into it. The mighty angel, it seems to me, should be connected with Christ, whether it's Christ himself or His personal angel, the one who represents him, um, can be debated. But there are many ways in which the figure here is similar to other descriptions of Christ. We might think about the description of Christ in the opening vision. Um, In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We might think about the description of the transfiguration. We might also think about the description of the figure that's seen in the Theophany of Ezekiel, um, chapter 1. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the lightness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So we've got the rainbow in that. We've got the dazzling light. We've got the fire and, and other elements that we have here. Here we have the description of the angel that brings together various elements that we associate with the covenant and with theophanies the rainbow connected of course with the promise given to noah and the covenant given to noah the face like the sun the description of christ early on the way that christ is described in the transfiguration legs like pillars of fire obviously the pillar of cloud and fire that led the israelites through the wilderness the little scroll that's opened Uh, again might draw our minds back to the fact that the scroll has been opened, the book has been opened as the seals have been opened. And now that open scroll, its judgments can be um, put into effect. The right foot on the land, on the sea and the left foot on the land might also recall descriptions from the book of um, Daniel 
And so in um, Daniel, the description of the angel that appears there in um, in the concluding um, vision would seem to have similar features. And the book opened would most likely be that of the prophecy that now can be delivered and affected. Yes. Uh, now, do the, you know I'm going to ask you this question. Do the seven items in the description of the angel link back to the seven days of creation? Well, it's possible that they do. We certainly have um, various features associated with the land and sea, the two feet being present in each one. We've got the lion roaring um, connected with the beasts. Might think about the way that we've got the cloud, the waters above, and the rainbow, and the sun, the connection with the fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars, um, and other features certainly connected with various realms established on the days of creation. I'm less convinced that there is a creation pattern playing out here, but clearly it's working within that world. And if we are understanding the world of Genesis 1, this makes a lot more sense. Now, what are the seven thunders and why, again, are there seven of them? Seven thunders might connect with the seven trumpets. So we might, again, think of theophanic scenes. Trumpets are connected with the first theoph great theophany of Sinai, the theophany that sets the terms for the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. You have trumpet blast. We have thunder. We have um, lightning. We have the thick cloud and darkness, and we have the glory in the midst. And the ways that this um, is described call our mind back to elements of the theophanic vision of Sinai. And the voice that speaks in thunder might recall that. Later on, Israel are called to create silver trumpets that will move the war camp. There's a sort of earthly analogy to the trumpets that um, accompany the Lord's theophanic presence and lead the people out. So it connect the, the thunders are forms of speech, forms of revelation. Um, the thunder in Sinai is connected with the Lord's voice. And many uh, later reflections upon the events of Sinai saw thunder and lightning connected with the communication of God's voice. And then all of that connected with the, the trumpets. And so it seems to me we're working within a similar world of symbolism here. Yes. Now, what does the angel say? And why does the angel say that time no longer shall be in verse six? Yes, the sealing up of the prophecy, I think, should be considered. John is about to write down what is told or what he hears, and he's instructed not to write it down. Um, presumably, this is the contents of the book that is opened and declared in the trumpets. And as it's opened, we will have the things taking place. And so what the trumpets declare is really what what's happening in the rest of the book of Revelation, it seems to me. This, I think, should also be considered in the light of Daniel. Again, at the end of Daniel, we have many themes and motifs that are connected with the book of Revelation. Daniel 12, 4-9. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, 
one on this bank of the stream or one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, think of all the correspondences here. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard and did, but did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So we've got the description of the man clothed in linen early on in Daniel 10, 5 to 6. I lifted up my eyes and, be, and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphrates around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. Again, think the face like the appearance of the sun. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the pillars of fire and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So we've got elements that seem to invite comparison here. And whereas one in one case, the words are sealed up, now, in this case, the mystery of God is about to be fulfilled and there is no more delay. So it seems that we're revisiting the same thing. But now the seals have been opened and the book is about to be put into effect. And so the prophecy is temporarily sealed, what the thunders have said. Not They're not written down. It will then be performed and then it will be written down. And so Daniel, I think, is the key to what's taking place here. We've talked a lot too about the connection between John and Ezekiel and we're about to see a whole lot of new references back to Ezekiel. I wonder what's the significance of the fact that the scroll is bitter because he's given the scroll to, to eat symbolically, isn't he? What's the significance of the fact the scroll is bitter in John's stomach? We've already seen waters made bitter um, early on with the stars falling wormwood. And so it seems that this is a, a theme that's playing throughout in various ways. In Ezekiel, he is given the scroll of his prophecy in the beginning of chapter 3. Um, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And earlier on in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And it seems to me that the bitterness is related to these words of mourning and woe that he's speaking. Or again, remember the woes that come at the end of the of the trumpets the final three of the sequence and the sealed book described early on in chapter five i think is similar to the book that's given to ezekiel in chapters two and three we might also think back to the test of jealousy in numbers chapter five where words are scraped off into uh into water which is also including dust from the tabernacle or temple floor and then it's drunk by the woman as a test of adultery, a test of jealousy. And if she has committed adultery, judgment is brought upon her. And that theme of bitter waters is played out in the story of Israel in various points. We might think of the events of Mara, the bitter waters there. We might think also of the way that 
in the events after the sin with the golden calf, the people are made to drink the dust of the golden calf that's spread upon the water, the dust of their sin, and it brings bitterness and plague and pestilence upon them. So these connections are similar to, oh, it seems to me, at the background here. The sweet like honey recalls the description of Ezekiel's tasting of the scroll and the way in which he prophesies. He seals, he's having sealed up the words of the thunders. Now he's given words to speak himself. The scroll is delivered from the angel and um, Christ's messenger to John, and then he is going to be bringing it forth. Um, he's a participant in the prophecy, not merely an observer of a vision. And the measuring rod too, uh, I suppose, goes back to Ezekiel, doesn't it? Uh, what's the significance of the 42 months? And is there a connection back to Jubilee? 42 months. Um, it's worth bearing in mind there are a number of measurements of time here. There's 42 months, there's a time, times, and half a time, and there's 1,260 days. And these all correspond to each other. So 1,260 days is 42 30-day months. And then a time, time, and half a times, uh, time is one year plus two years plus half a year, which is three and a half years, which divided down, that would be three years, 36 months, and then half a year, six months which makes 42. So they're all the same time, but the same time viewed from different perspectives. The 42 months or the time times and half a time recalls the book of Daniel once again, where we have the um, boasting horn and other um, elements like that that are connected with rule or um, some sort of testing of the people of God for a time times and half a time. Um, and the trampling of the holy city for 42 months suggest that the 42 months are connected with times of gentiles on the other hand the days are connected the months are connected with the moon days are connected with the sun and when we think about the days the days seem to represent the power enjoyed by the people of god in the same period where the enemies of the lord enjoy a different sort of power Mm. Uh, big question who are the two witnesses the two witnesses first of all should draw our mind back to old testament figures and uh, we might think particularly of the um, characters of moses and elijah like elijah the witnesses have power over fire they can shut up the sky preventing rain elijah's ministry begins with the proclamation of the drought and we might also think of Elijah calling down fire from heaven and then ascending in fire to heaven in chapters one and two of Second Kings. Like Moses, they can turn waters into blood and strike the earth with plagues. Again, we've had plagues earlier on with the blowing of the trumpets. And this is a sort of playing out on another level. And um, so we've had the trumpets and then we have the thunders and then we have the deliverance of those to the prophet or um, John, and then the min other ministers who are involved in declaring this upon earth. Um, so the two witnesses also breathe fire. They're like the creatures released from the Euphrates in chapter 9. You might think about the ways that the tongues of fire rested upon the disciples at Pentecost, setting their tongues aflame, and they speak with fiery tongues. And so tongue 
as in English, in the Greek, it's playing upon the same term, the tongues of flame and the tongues of speech. We might also think about the ways that witnesses, these are not just actors or prophets, they are witnesses. We might think about the ways that cities are judged with two witnesses, the judgment upon Egypt with Moses and Aaron, or the judgment upon Jericho with the two spies, or the judgment upon Sodom with the two angelic witnesses. This is a similar sort of thing taking place. They're sent to bear fire, to set, to judge. Um, they have power to operate in every level of the world, the heavens, the waters, and the earth. And they're related back to the 144,000 and then forward to the woman of the following chapter, not least in the 1,000. 260 days that they're provided for. Yeah, do the time periods mentioned here relate back to Jesus' ministry? We might think about the time, times, and half a time, or the period of days as similar to Christ's um, period of death. And so the period of time after which they're raised up suggests that three and a half days suggests that there is something similar to Christ's resurrection playing out here. Again, connecting it with the city where Christ was crucified suggests that they are playing out in their own lives the pattern of Christ's. Uh, and so therefore the question is, I suppose, do the two witnesses represent Jew and Gentile? Perhaps, yes. All we might think about is the witness of the church more generally that's represented by these witnesses, not necessarily Jew and Gentile. The way in which they operate, maybe it's just vision of the ministry of the church in a broader sense among Jews and Gentiles. Yes, we're still dealing with this first century period, aren't we? Um, and it all fits, it really does. Um, what is the great city that's called Sodom and Egypt here? We've seen that this land receives a lot of the the biblical judgments, the, like the plagues on Egypt. So uh, what is the great city that's called Sodom and Egypt? And how is that? theology working out. So we have other identifications beyond Sodom and Egypt. We have the Babylon the Great later on. We also have the way that it's compared to Jericho with the blowing of seven trumpets and the deliverance of the harlot or the judgment upon the harlot, however we want to understand how that plays out and we'll get to that in time. In this way, there's a characterization of the city according to archetypal cities, whether that's the city in which Lot dwelt that was judged on account of its signal evil, um, the chief of the cities of the plain in the judgments of chapter 19 of Genesis, that is the first judgment that falls upon the land of Canaan, anticipating the later judgments, or whether it's Egypt that faces the plagues, or whether it's Jericho, which is the first of the cities of the land that are given into the hand of the people of God, or whether it's um, Egypt or whether it's um, Babylon, the city that's judged that is the city of their exile. The way that it's connected with the city in which Christ was crucified suggests that this is also Jerusalem. And I think it is primarily Jerusalem. This is the city upon which all the, these judgments are falling. This is the paradigmatic city. If these other cities have ways in which they've been unfaithful, if they're cities that have face the judgment of God in some special way, Jerusalem on account of its historic, of the way that it has rejected the Lord, on account of its harlotry, the fact that it alone was in a special relationship with the Lord, it faces 
a particular judgment. And so it is the city of all the cities. Think back to the beginning of the book where we have letters to seven cities and church, the churches within them. This is the great city that stands above all of these. And so the events of the land have always been central as a sort of symbolic typology of the land and the sea. The great city of the land is Jerusalem and the various cities of the sea are the cities of the nations. These cities of the nations represent the great city, which is the city of Jerusalem. And so it seems to me that the city that we meet in the chapters that follow is primarily Jerusalem. Although within Jerusalem, we can see other, it has a figure of other things beyond itself that will play out at various points in history and that represent realities that play out in history before that as well. Now, what happens when the seventh trumpet is blown, Alistair? The seventh trumpet is the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of Christ. It is the signal event that represents the end of this sequence and the beginning announcing the, the next sequence that comes. It's a period of celebration in heaven. It's a sort of sabbatical trumpet as well. You might think about the ways that the seven trumpets blown. Um, the seventh trumpet was the one that led to the the downfall that led to the pronouncement, as it were, that the city was being given into the hands of the people of God at Jericho. We might think about the way the year of Jubilee began with the blowing of trumpets at the beginning of the year um, on the day of trumpets, feast of trumpets. And now we have something similar. This is the beginning of something new. This is the year of liber liberation. And with the final trumpet, there is the handing over or the returning of the land to its proper those who should possess it. And so there's a complete reordering. It's the year of the Lord's favour. It's the initiation of this great deliverance. Why is God's temple in heaven opened at this point in 11 verse 19? Well, uh, we might see this as anticipating the fact that God's presence will be with his people at the end of the book. He will dwell among them. And there is this joining of the heavenly temple to earth and this opening of the heavenly temple i think suggests a movement towards this um, there's a revelation of the mystery there's the opening up so that the lord's presence can come forth there's the um, way in which it is the lord coming out to meet um, his people and to be united and finally the mystery is being disclosed the things that were contained and veiled are being removed. The veil itself is being removed. The firmament that once divide, divided the high heavens from the earth, that is being removed, and there is going to be a union of heaven and earth that this book is moving towards. Is there a reference back to the Day of Atonement here? Yes, we might we might see that. It was the Day of Atonement as the one day in the year where the high priest entered the, the temple. Atonement has now been made. Atonement is the feast that follows the blowing of trumpets. And so in the sequence, we might see that as the natural development at this point, that having blown the final trumpet, we have the atonement being provided for. The heavenly temple is opened, and now um, there is a union between God and man that's made possible. So the trumpet section refers back to the Feast of Trumpets. Yes, I think it can. And also to the year of Jubilee, which would begin in that feast at the head of the year. Uh, we might also see the way that with the um, events of 
of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement sort of anticipates final judgment, the final casting out and the final gathering in, and maybe there's something similar taking place here. The time, this is the time of judgment. This is the time when the dead will be um, the greater size, final size, and the servants of God will be rewarded, all the dead will be judged and the wicked will be um, punished. Right, well, there we go. I think that's about our half hour. Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States talking about the second part of the Seven Trumpets. And next time, I think we come on to uh, chapters 12 to 16, Alistair, don't we, which is sort of like the third section of Trumpets. It's like a continuation of a Seventh Trumpet, isn't it? But we'll come and talk about And so much there. Wow. <laughs> Chapter 12, will we get through that in one? I'm not sure. Well, we'll we'll have to have a chat about how we're going to divide it up. Mm -hmm. All good. Thank you so much, as always. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Alistair, thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter you'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.